Erwin Schrodinger was a 20th century physicist, and he was a buddy of Albert Einstein. He was brilliant, and he was foolish. He lived with his wife and a mistress at the same time. He was a serial sexual abuser, including children. So he was brilliant academically and a pioneer in the weird world of quantum physics, and he was arrogant and self-absorbed at the same time. He is probably most famous for his thought experience called Schrodinger's cat. And in this scenario, this hypothetical cat may be considered simultaneously both dead and alive. And don't ask. Um, I probably couldn't explain if I wanted to. But you can watch a short, really helpful TED Talk video if you're interested. It's pretty helpful. Just please don't do it right now. And it explains a little bit about the, the thought experiment, but also how what what Schrodinger was trying to do was prove his own quantum theories were absurd. They seemed contradictory, and so he kind of abandoned them and kind of abandoned physics and moved to, to biology where he thought there'd be more, um, less mystery. But now we use some of the, the things that came from that thought experiment in kind of everyday electronics. So ironically, his... his Hypothetical cat, which he was trying to just demonstrate the absurdity of quantum physics, ends up kind of proving them. The quantum world is mysterious beyond human understanding. And it's not so much that, not so mysterious that we don't use it in everyday technology. So there's reasons why I'm starting with Schrodinger and his hypothetical cat. First, little good intellectual brilliance does if you have no moral goodness. But second, and this is most per mostly pertinent for today, is everyone lives with mystery. Mystery is a core component of science and faith. It's a part of every human's life. But mystery doesn't mean we don't have real knowledge that can be applied, of course. It just means we will never have complete knowledge of the cosmos, of, of really anything. So why is there mystery? Well, because we're humans. We occupy a little tiny corner of space and time. And it's both arrogant and absurd to believe that we can ever know much of all that can be known. But just like you don't have to unlock the mysteries of the quantum world to unlock your phone, you don't have to have full understanding of the mysteries of Christ in order to be saved by him and live a life of freedom. So let me read out of um, Paul's letter to Timothy. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up to glory. This is a short summary statement of faith. In the Greek, the poetic nature of the paragraph is more readily seen, but it is poetry and it's history. It's history and it's mystery. So it shouldn't be a surprise that we can't get our minds all the way around Jesus, the incarnation, the doctrine that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And some might say, well, I don't believe in doctrine. I just have my own beliefs about God and humans and life and eternity. Well, that would be your doctrine. And there is good doctrine, true, and there's bad doctrine, false. And you want to have good doctrine because what we believe becomes what we do with our lives. So again, don't think the doctrine of the incarnation is a contradiction. A contradiction would be Jesus is fully God and he's not fully God. There's mystery. There's no contradiction in the incarnation. God became man while remaining fully God. We don't understand how this could be, but that's not a surprise. We're talking about God here. And in order to get our minds all the way around God, we would have to be God. So in the quantum world, or the very little that we know about it, Ant-Man knows a lot about it, but we, the rest of us, don't know much about it. There are some things that appear contradictory, but they're actually mystery for now. 
So a cat can't be dead and alive at the same time, even in the quantum world. So there's something going on there that we don't fully understand. I think, I don't know, but I think Schrodinger's arrogance kept him from being okay with mystery that's greater than his own brilliance. But the incarnation of Christ is not just mystery, it's history. We can be, we must be confident that the incarnation is actual history. And in the Advent season, as Rodney said, the, the four weeks before Christmas, we're going to look at the mystery and history of Jesus and how this should lead to a combination of humility and worship as well as ongoing, confident lives of obedience. So we can't lose our hold of either side of the tension. History without mystery can become just facts, and we can presume to know more that we, than we can know. And we can think we've got it all locked down. There's no need to really trust God. I've got it. There's no mystery of faith. Or if we do all, all history without mystery, we can believe we can come to, to doubt those things that we can't get our mind around. If we can't fully understand it, then we don't believe it. That's a very foolish approach to life. If you don't apply that anywhere else in your life, why would you apply that here? And then the mystery of that history can become spiritual pursuits, emotional ideas of what it means to know God, to live a life of faith. And that can become very subjective and you can get weird quick. The nuns, the, the famous nuns, if you have in the military, they give out your religious preference when you first sign up. And there's Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, Muslim, Buddhist, and then there's the none of the above. More and more people are checking none of the above or spiritual but not religious. But ironically, people in that camp, those people where it's faith is mystery, there's no community in it, there's no objective truth. They decide who God is. They decide what's true about the world. They bring their own cultural perspectives, personal opinions. It's just another form of pride. So the balance is found in all places of Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of my favorite verses, and it combines the humility of mystery, we can't know everything, and the accessibility of history, we're able to know and do God's will because he's made himself known. So it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of his law. So mystery, the secret things, they belong to God. And it's not that God is keeping secrets hidden away, it's that he's God. And of course, some things will always be in the realm of the secret or the mysterious, because he's infinite and we never will be. History, the things reveal what God has done in time and space. At Sinai, given the law and the prophets, in Christ in the birth of the church. All this is ours to have and know and live given to us in Scripture. We have God's will and His ways in Scripture. We don't have to guess. We don't have to make stuff up. We can obey and teach the next generation to obey and to live in the freedom of God's will. Christians embrace mystery and history, but so does every other human on the planet. Mystery doesn't mean that we take an irrational leap of faith. We trust God with the mystery because he's shown himself to be trustworthy in history. I can get around fairly well on the screen and keyboard side of a computer, but behind the veil of, of a mechanical processor and the code that's magically embedded there, you say it's not magic. I'm not convinced. I think Harry Potter, not Steve Jobs, made my MacBook. So I have a friend for whom this stuff is not mysterious. It's not magic. So when he tells me, Terry, here's what's going on on this side, the processor side, it's mystery to me, it's not mystery to him. So would I be taking an irrational leap of faith if I believe him? Of course not. 
It'd be entirely proper and wise to trust my trustworthy friend on things he understands that I don't. And we do it all the time. We do it with doctors and mechanics and HVAC specialists. Whatever's a mystery to you but not to them, it's wise to trust them. Matter of fact, it's foolish to not trust them. So when we say we trust God with the mystery, we're not leaping in the dark of irrational human faith. We're simply making a wise decision, a good and rational decision to trust a God who's proven himself trustworthy. He's shown up in history, shown up in our lives, and so we can trust him with the things we don't understand. So mystery doesn't mean irrational leap of faith. It means true things that we can't fully understand, but we take them on faith in God because he's shown himself worthy of our trust. But we don't just live by mystery. We also balance it with history. History meaning known facts. But just as James said, knowing the facts isn't enough. We have to respond to the facts with faith. So I'm footstopping this point, not literally, but that's, I'm footstopping this point, or to use an idiom, oh, I'm beating this dead horse, because we can't fall prey to the idea that we live by faith while others live by the facts. That's just not true. Everybody lives by this combination of faith and facts. I also don't want you to, to allow your confidence in what you do know to suffer because of things you don't fully understand. And that happens too often. So if someone at your school or someone at work or someone online asks a question for which you don't have an answer, I hope you don't panic. I hope in, in humility you're okay with that. Either there is an answer, I just don't know it, or this, this, this is just above any human's pay grade and we're not going to know the answer. But they don't, know the, they don't know what's going on with the cell phone that they're texting you right now on. Everyone lives by faith. Everyone lives by fact. Glenn Schreibner said it like this. Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. So today we begin Advent in the first gospel, first chapter. So get ready. Matthew is going to put you on the edge of your seat. So lean in. And you're, if you've read Matthew 1, you're laughing because you've probably uh, maybe used it to go to sleep at night. It's a genealogy, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And on he goes to verse 16. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called the Christ. A genealogy would seem like a boring way to begin a book, but to Matthew's original readers, it was super important. He's introducing Jesus as a Messiah, the Christ. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collector. He was an attention to detail guy. He'd become a follower of Jesus, and he took the oral history of people who knew Jesus. He interviewed people. He had his own experience, and he put it all together in his book. It's historically accurate, but it's not merely a history book. It's a, it's a gospel. A gospel is a very specific, unique genre of literature. There's only four of them in the world with the purpose of telling the good news of Jesus so that people would believe in him and be born again. And it's news. It's not religious advice. It's not just biography. Historian Thomas Kidd didn't write his recent biography of Thomas Jefferson so people would be eternally transformed by his book. He wanted to give historical facts about an important historical figure. Matthew is giving historical facts in order to move his readers to faith in Christ. So it's more but it's not less than history. And all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, give factually, historically accurate information, but they do so with different audiences in mind. And Matthew's concerned to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the biblical story. He's writing primarily to Jewish people. 
And his first readers, these Jewish people, this genealogy would tell the whole story and it would do it in a way that nothing else could. So we read it and we see it like, uh, okay, get to the point. And they would read it and go, okay, you're saying a lot here. He's in the line of Abraham. He's a member of the tribe of Judah, of the family of David. And the names that are given are selected to demonstrate a certain aspect of the Lord's lineage. This is real history. At the same time, it's mind-blowing mystery. As they're reading this genealogy, they're thinking about how God ordained and directed human history to bring about his purposes. And he did this while keeping human responsibility, human freedom intact. It's amazing. He chose Moses, and yet Moses had to choose to obey God. He used the rebellion of his people and the rebellion of the Babylonians for his larger purposes while remaining a holy God, and his people did not have to rebel against him. So Matthew is real history, but it's not bare history. And Jesus is the climax of the story of Adam in the garden and Abraham leaving Iraq and the Exodus and David's capture of Jerusalem, Solomon building a temple, the fall of the north in 722, the fall of the south in 587. It's all history, but it's history with a life-changing purpose. And so Matthew begins with a genealogy that's sort of a resume. And genealogy said to people at this time, this is who I am. If you look at Ancestry.com, you'll find this on the very front page of the website. It'll have pictures of people and this kind of a breathless announcement. Will it work for you? Real customers share what they discovered, how it changed their lives. You could be next. So knowing your genealogy, I hate to tell you, won't change your life. Jesus, knowing Jesus the Messiah, can change your life if we respond in faith. You can read today of politicians who try to include certain people in their family lines to make themselves look better. You've probably read those stories the last. As, as elections get closer and culture changes, they'll try to find people who they wanted to be in their genealogy and sort of put them there. This practice is quite old in politics. Herod, that murderous tyrant who tried to kill, find and kill baby Jesus at birth, he purged names from his own genealogy because he wanted to make his history look more perfect than it actually was. Then you look at Jesus, God incarnate. He didn't doctor his resume. It's interesting that the genealogy of the Son of God, there are five women, which was unusual at the time. Three of them were non-Jews, outsiders. One was a prostitute. One was involved in incest. Though Matthew was selective in who he mentioned because of his goals, he wasn't trying to clean up the Messiah's resume. He had a bigger purpose. And look at how he mentions probably one of the biggest stars of the genealogy, Israel's greatest king, David, and his mighty son, Solomon. He said, Jesse, the, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Did you catch that? Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why not just Solomon, King David's son? Well, because David had been immoral, and he impregnated Bathsheba, who was married to a really good man, a much better man than David, named Uriah. David had him killed to hide his sin and get what he wanted. So Matthew's giving history and mystery as a gospel to change lives. Ancestry.com won't change your life. Jesus and Messiah can't. And Matthew's communicating, look, whether you're an outsider, insider, a terrible sinner, whoever you are, whoever you think you are, the gospel's good news for you. Star Wars begins with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Often fairy tales begin with once upon a time. These are signals that what follows is a myth. It's a fun story, maybe it has a moral, but it's a myth. We don't ask a storyteller when they say once upon a time, well, when exactly was that? What galaxy did Luke and Darth live in? I'm trying to locate it here on my star map. 
There's no exact winner where this is not actual factual history. I tell my grandkids stories all the time, and sometimes they ask me to tell them a real story, which means they want me to talk about my life as a kid. Usually, my grandsons want me to tell them some naughty thing I did so they'll feel better about themselves. <laughs> Other times, they say, okay, gee, they call me G. G, we want a story story, you know, story story versus a real story. And the difference is easy for the older kids to spot because in real stories, you know, there's not aliens and there's not you know, multi-headed dogs and this kind of stuff. But the younger ones will still on occasion say, for real, for real? I'm like, how can you not know this is not for real? Matthew is grounding his fantastic gospel story in actual history. History as news of what happened, why it happened, and what to do with that news. So a gospel is a kind of writing that's about good news. News is a report of what has happened. In a newspaper, you might have advice columns and opinion columns, and you had news. Gospel is not spiritual advice, it's not opinions, it's news. Here's what God did, but it's news with implication. Like headlines across the country in 1945, victory, VE, war is over. It was news of what happened, but it was good news with implications. Rationing's about to end. Your loved one is going to come home. No one else in your family needs to go die. And so Matthew's writing an account of good news, what has happened in history with real implications for his readers. He's not written good advice. He's written good news. So after the historically relevant information about the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew, the accountant, gives us this. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. And again, Jesus Christ came about. We have this intersection of history and mystery. He doesn't start with once upon a time in Bethlehem. He said this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. Jesus is his name telling us his human nature. Messiah Christ is telling us his divine nature. This is how this great mystery incarnation happened in human history. Then if you read the rest of that chapter, you get the facts. Joseph did this. Mary became pregnant in supernatural fashion. All this was to fulfill what God had foretold many centuries earlier by Isaiah. So if you struggle with believing the virgin birth, don't start in Matthew 1. Start in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God made the cosmos. And believe that. You can believe Genesis 1 because it's believable and it's true. It's the only explanation any human's ever offered that fully and reasonably explains the cosmos as it is. No scientist has offered, apart from Scripture, a reasonable explanation for the cosmos. Believe that, believe Genesis 1-1, then everything that follows is not that hard to believe. The virgin birth, miracles, resurrection, all of it. So Matthew's giving news that combines, combines the mystery and history of the gospel into a single story. The God who made the cosmos and the humans who live in it on this little blue planet God took on human flesh to dwell among us. He is transcendent, way, way above us. He's imminent, God with us. It's fascinating to me because I, when I, and I'll read, do this frequently, when I will read of authors who disbelieve the faith and they will simultaneously tout the greatness of human beings, how we're smart, we're noble, we're unlimited in capacity. And then they'll turn around and mock Christians who say, in the, in the Bible, God cares for the cosmos and he's involved in the details of human history. This God, this God who made the cosmos has an opinion about what we do and don't do. He literally knows that some things are good and some things are bad for us. Imagine that. And they'll cry out and say, what kind of petty God do you guys believe in? This cosmic moral policeman. 
If he runs the cosmos, why does he care about little human beings? Do you see the contradiction? I mean, which is it? Are we all that or are we not worth his attention? They want to have their cake and eat it too. You know that idiom, Mo? <laughs> Mo and I love to talk about idioms. It means they want to have their cake and they want to eat it. You, you know, either or you can have it. You can't have both. Humans can't shake their fist at a sovereign God because they believe that they're just so wise and then mock the idea of a sovereign God who takes interest in humans, who has opinions about what we do with our lives. And the truth is, we're not great, we're not smart, we're not unlimited, yet we are eternal. We are loved. We are full of godly potential, but that potential can only be known and experienced in relationship to the one who's made us. So let's come in for a landing and make some application. Which side of the tension do you think you might have the most trouble keeping hold of? And healthy lives involve healthy tensions. Just like for that piano to not be noisy, there's tension on those strings. And this guitar, if there's no tension, it's, it's not going to be able to make music. If there's no tension on your muscle, it's torn. It's unable to be strong. And so we don't like tension, but we require tension. So which side of tension do you think you're most likely to struggle with? Maybe the mystery side. You don't like mysteries or things you can't explain. You're a problem solver. This is good. The world needs people like you. But since you're a thinker, be sure you're thinking broadly about this. Can you really know even a fraction of what can be known? How much really of your life involves mystery, more mystery than maybe you're thinking about? And embracing mystery is not an irrational leap into the dark. It would be trusting God because he's trustworthy. He's proven himself most decisively in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So don't struggle with doubts about the faith because there are things that are a mystery to you. Of course there are. But not just for you, but for everyone. Maybe you have trouble holding firmly to the history side, the factual side. Maybe you're like some of my friends and family wired for feeling and compassion and experience. Good for you. We need you. But you must not trust your feelings and experiences over the facts of faith. God has spoken. In space and time, God has spoken. And God cares about people. He's both smarter than we are and he's a better person than we are. And if God wants something for someone or doesn't want something for someone, then it's because he's good and wise. It's not because he's petty. When he says about your friend, you should not do that. Or he says about you, you should not do that. You should do this. Take him at his word. So in the Bible, we have scriptural doctrine. We have the facts of faith. And sometimes God has taken good, trained, hardworking thinkers who have spent years putting these facts together in books called Systematic Theologies. I like them. Some people choke on them. It's okay. If you don't like them, don't go choke on them. But they bless the church with their gifts of doing work in the original languages and history and writing these books that take all the facts of faith, put them together in these books that show us how do we live life personally and in community. Some people say, well, those aren't good because the Bible is not a set of facts. It's a story. It's a story. That's a set of facts. It's never either or. It's always going to be both and. Scripture is the facts of faith, and it's a story of God's saving acts in humanity through the Messiah. So we believe the facts of the story of Jesus the Messiah, and then we transfer trust from ourselves to him by faith. We know what he did, and we know why he did it. And we respond with our lives. 
We respond with our heads and our hearts and our habits. It's all the above. It's holding these things in tensions. In the 19th century and up to today, there were some theologians who did not and do not take the Bible seriously. And what they wanted to do, or thought they were doing, was they were protecting the faith from the attacks of the emerging scientists and philosophers who were no longer believers. And they, were, they said that you cannot live by faith anymore. That was all superstition. Now we just have science. We just have facts. And so these, these, these attackers on the faith were presuming that they lived only by the facts, which has always been utter nonsense, still is. And so these theologians, in order to protect the faith, came up with this idea that there is a world of facts. You guys have that, you know, the history people, the science people, the philosophers. Let's call that the downstairs world, the real world. And downstairs is a world of hospitals and offices and houses and boats and cars and science and smartphones and facts and history. But we own the, the world of faith, the upstairs world. It's experience. You can't refute experience. It's something that can't be proven. It's not real history. It's all mystery. Faith is upstairs, religious experience. It's just a rational leap of faith. Downstairs is the facts. These people did not protect faith from science and reason by making it an irrational leap. They simply made it irrelevant to large numbers of people. It was a tragedy. Our lives are a single story. We live with history and mystery like every other human being ever has, ever will. The difference for us is that we know why we're here. We know what our problem is. We know what our solution is. We know what's, what we're supposed to be doing with our lives, and we know what happens when our lives are over. We're not guessing. We're not making things up. Those who don't know God live with mystery in the most important things for humans to know. Yeah, they know how to make smartphones. They don't know why they're here making smartphones. And they don't know what's going to happen when they die and they can't take their smartphone with them. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us that we may know and obey and enjoy God. So be humble. Be comfortable with humility. There's mystery. Of course there's mystery. But be confident and residently faithful because there's history. And you combine history and mystery together into a single story life where you're the same person believing the same things everywhere you go, whatever you do. Let's pray together. So what part of that tension do you struggle with? Do you have questions? Take those to God right now. Speak to God about them.